Welcome to Highlands Church Audio Sermons. Today, October 17th, 2021, we continue our series titled Romans, Gospel for All Time. Today's sermon, When Right is Wrong, will be taught to us by Pastor Jeff Stevens out of Romans chapter 2, verses 17 through 29. But first, here's a quick recap of last week's sermon. So here's the big question. Why did God give the law? Romans chapter 3 For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. Every single work that you do as a person is not going to make you righteous. Keep going. Since through the law, now he's going to tell you why we have the law, comes the knowledge of sin. See, the law was meant for people to realize, I am a sinner. The Bible only has one story. One story. Everything in the Bible is intended to bring me to the place where I would go, you're there, I need you, but I can't get there on my own. The real point of the law was to lead us to Jesus. We're going to deal with a fairly heavy subject today of hypocrisy. And hypocrisy manifests and shows itself in a myriad of different ways, and I'll gladly throw myself under the bus uh, in my own hypocrisy. I was thinking of a story that took place actually um, 1875. And it was a story when two theological giants of the time got together. It was Charles Haddon Spurgeon and D.L. Moody. And they got together face to face and were uh, ministering and sharing and uh, studying God's word and preaching God's word uh, together. And as the story goes, they were walking down the street and Spurgeon, who of course is a man after my own heart, lit up one of his infamous cigars and began to smoke his cigar walking down the street. And to which D.L. Moody uh, approached him and said, uh, how could a man of God smoke that cigar? And as Spurgeon approached Moody, who uh, also is a man after my heart because he's rather well built, not in a healthy way. (laughs) And Spurgeon poked him in the belly and said, the same way a godly man wears that. We oftentimes deal with great difficulties in our life. We go through uh, life uh, with these kind of subtle truths that maybe are not transparent to the rest of the world, motivations or desires that in fact uh, drive us to be who we are. For myself, I have struggled with weight for probably 35 years. Uh, Certainly uh, for the 29 years I've been married to Jill. I always joke and say on all four of our daughters, I matched her pound for pound and never lost the baby weight. But in the weeks uh, ago, uh, I was illustrating uh, the difference between knowing and doing and the gap that exists between knowing what is true and doing what is true. And that gap that I made fun of, I used illustratively, I said, it's like going to a well-educated doctor who's going to tell you uh, you're overweight. My gosh, this is fascinating. I didn't realize that. <laughs> and then further to it is they look at you with all sincerity and say you should eat better and you should exercise. Is this new? Is this new technology or something that we're doing? Of course it's not. But of course, making fun of a doctor, one of course rightly reached out to me afterwards and confronted me about that and said, hey, I'm going to go ahead and help you do. 
And so I'm going to introduce you to a doctor who is, in fact, going to handhold you through the entire process. And by the grace of God, I stand before you uh, 63 pounds lighter and nine inches shorter around the middle. I have estimated that to be the average size of an average fifth grade boy. And for those of you that are new, you're sitting there saying, but you could probably lose another fifth grade boy. I'm good with that. My topic today is that when right is wrong or when my claims of Christianity don't necessarily line up with my witness of Christianity. When my outside view is not matching the inward view. There are a lot of things in this life that I desire. Good health is certainly one of them. I'm certainly not seeking or trying to have bad or poor health. I'm certainly aware doctrinally that uh, I can't add or take away days from my life because Psalm 139 says that all the days of my life are ordained by God. But I can participate in this life and have a higher quality. But when it comes to Christianity, we deal with a lot of different things that are influencing us in our life. That brings us to our text today. Paul, in Romans 2, I'm actually going to start with the, uh, verse 16, although our text is 17 uh, through the end of chapter 2. But Paul starts in verse 16, he says, On that day, when according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by, Jesus, by Christ Jesus. We do, in fact, carry around a lot of secrets. But he says, but if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law, and if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. For circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly. And a circumcision, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. Our Father and our God, Lord, we come to you with this word, this truth that Paul has given us. We pray that you would work in our hearts uh, here and now, Lord, that we would come to see what it is to be a true follower, a true um, believer in you. Lord, that we would be uh, showing the sign and seal of your covenant, 
this inward circumcision of the heart, Lord. I pray, Lord, that you would reveal to us truth for each of us individually. I pray, Lord, for the families who have lost loved ones over this last week or so. I pray, Lord, that you would give grace and mercy to them, compassion from the family, compassion from the body of Christ, not to overwhelm them, but, Lord, just to serve them and love them and minister to them in the truth and spirit of your word. Help us, Lord, grow in your grace. Help us to have better and better understanding of your son. It's in Christ's name we pray, amen. The big idea here is that maybe, in fact, our claim of faith does not match our witness of faith. Hypocrisy uh, continues in the church and probably this side of glory always will. Each of us carries around a secret. Each of us carries around a certain level of hypocrisy. But in today's text, Paul is dealing with the form of resistance that is common amongst those of us who are religious. And let me expand that to the high compliant, rule following legalist. That person who feels that they have to call everything out. That person who points to their self-righteousness in their own obedience to the word. How is it possible that the obedience of the word of God, that the compliance to the word of God could in fact still remain sinful and driven from something that is not of God but is driven from our own self-righteousness? Paul is in fact preaching specifically here to the Jew but he is specifically preaching to all of us. For all of us at any one time have in fact an aspect of legalism in our heart, an act of legalism to point to our righteousness. The resistance is the assumption that having so much revelation, so much knowledge of God's law and truth, and so much of the truth and and personal responsibility that we spend most of our time trying to prove other people wrong and prove ourselves right. Weeks ago when I preached on uh, sexual immorality, it's obvious when you are talking about the wrath of God being revealed from heaven against all forms of ungodliness and unrighteousness. It's easy to point to the person who suffers from license, the person who knows what they're doing is wrong, but they do it anyway. It's obvious. But today what we're going to learn is that it's equally obvious that we not only repent and stand before a holy God of our ungodly behaviors that everyone sees, but that we also stand before him and repent of our self-righteousness. Because there are, in fact, people watching. Paul starts in verse 17. He says, but if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and you boast in God... And know his will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law. And if you are sure that you yourself are to the blind, uh, a light uh, to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher uh, of children, having the law, the embodiment, right? This embodiment is a tangible or a visible form of an idea or a quality that you embody Christ. A Christian is a little Christ. And we represent as ambassadors Christ. And so when we've been given such gift 
of the law and we have the embodiment of knowledge and truth, it poses the question to us, point one, what is our role? As an ambassador, as a follower of Christ, what's my role? And there's two parts to that. There's a claim and a witness. I claim to be a Christian. Does my witness match my claim? We're going to look at what Paul is saying here. right? Paul paints this incredible picture of privilege. He's pointing to the fact that these people have been raised with the law. They've got in their scripture the standard of how one ought to live their life. Versus the Gentile who's raised a lot like how I was raised, where my parents never darkened the door of a church. My father felt that the church was too hypocritical for him to ever participate in formalized or organized religion, as he would call it. This is a man who was raised in a God-fearing home. This is a man who graduated from a very strict uh, Baptist college. This is a man who I have copies of his sermons when he preached himself from the pulpit that he grew up in multiple times. This is a man who, when I would sit and talk to him about the Word of God, knew the Word of God. He had the law of God written on his heart. But because of two men who uh, uh, transpired a, a conversation with him, my father stopped going to church because of the witness that he had received from them and the hypocrisy. It was years later when I was preaching in San Diego that I kept inviting my father to come to church and my dad kept saying, son, son, I don't want anything to do with organized religion, the hypocrisy. I said, Dad, it's so true. The whole church is a bunch of hypocrites. Me too. And I got to tell you, there's room for one more. Can you come this Sunday? At least come and hear your son preach. And so he did. And he sat in the back row, right? Couldn't get any closer to the exit, right? I'm not insulting all you people back there. But the, but he's sitting in the back row. And I can see him back there. The arms are crossed. Oh, man, he's just dreading that he's there. It's just like he's attending a Little League game, right? And he's, he's sitting there, and he's wanting to be there, but he's not wanting to be there. But after the sermon, after everyone had exited, there's my dad sitting in that back row, sitting there. No one's, still, no one's left. I'm getting ready to walk out, and he comes walking down, and he says, son, he says, that was such a beautiful message. He says, you know that church? You know that church that your sister goes to? At the time, he was living with my sister. He says, that little Baptist church? He says, do you think they would let me come back? Of course. I said, and the sooner you can recognize that you're just one of the hypocrites, you will find this incredible pearl, the person of Jesus Christ. You see, God is revealing his wrath upon all the ungodliness. You and me. I don't know where my dad is today. He, he soon, a matter about a week later, he was diagnosed with some fairly significant dementia and Alzheimer's. And, and uh, he went to church, I think, two or three times. And then that was it. He didn't really know who anyone was anymore. But, you know, I have faith. I have hope that one day I'll see him again. But I know this for sure, that when my father left this earth, he went before the Lord, and our Lord is a loving and a just God. Amen? 
So we don't say this without any hope, but what Paul is talking about here is our role. He's talking about our claims. You see, he gives two lists in verses 17 through 20. And he's saying in these two lists with four claims, right? So he's saying, number one, you rely upon the law. We all rely upon the law. The law is, in fact, the thing that is the standard of God. Without the perfect fulfillment of this law, no one will see the face of God. That's what Hebrews tells us. But in, and then part two is that we boast in God, not ourselves. It's all to God's glory. And number three, we know his will. And number four, we approve the things that are essential or things that are excellent. Paul gives the basis of these four claims. In verse 18b, he says, being instructed out of the law. See, the law produces a standard, and in that standard, we're to understand that which is right, that which is excellent, that which is perfect. But the law compels something out of us. Number one, to rely on the law. Number two, to boast in God. Number three, to know his will. And number four, approve the things that are essential or things that are excellent. All of these are tracked back to being instructed in the law. Paul knows that the Jews are the people of the promise. They're the people of the book. This is God's chosen people. And as a chosen people, oftentimes they thought that because I'm chosen... I'm therefore perfect and holy before God, and I merely have to act out in obedience to the law. Paul's going to pull back the veil on this. He's going to reveal a truth, right? There's nothing wrong with obedience to the law. We don't come to the conclusion that, hey, if God's grace is revealed through disobedience, then let's sin all the more so that grace can abound. Paul will later say to us, may it never be. But Paul is trying to drive a point home here. What's wrong with our obedience to the law? Nothing. So what's the caution? He says, if you have light, you ought to shine the light to those in the darkness. Here's the problem. Part B is our witness. Part B is our witness. He's going to give us another four claims, right? And here they are. You are confident that you yourself, verses 19 through 20, you are confident that you yourself are a guide to the blind. You're a light to those who are in the darkness. You're a corrector of the foolish. You're a teacher of the immature. You see, that's our claim. That's our role. As Christians, we're an ambassador of Christ, right? You're in charge of the 100 square feet around you. And in that role, you are confident right? You're a guide to the blind. You're a light to those who are in darkness. You're a corrector of the foolish. You're a teacher to the immature. But here's what it defaults. This is what it compels. If this is true, then this is true. You're a guide to the blind, a light in the darkness, a corrector of the foolish, a teacher of the immature. It has to produce that. If it doesn't produce that, then what is it actually for? But look at the difference between the two groups of the four claims. In verses 17 through 18, the claim simply describes the Jews' own experience with the law, not how it affects how they relate to one another or to the Gentiles. 
They rest in it and they even boast in God and they know his will and they recognize all the things that are excellent. But the second group, our witness, the entire focus is on what the Jews should do. All of this is in relationship to others. They guide, they shine, they correct, they teach so that the second group goes way beyond what the first group does. If I, in fact, outwardly am a whitewashed tomb and inwardly this isn't what's compelling me at all, then I am, in fact, disobedient to the law. The implied conflict is that our claim sometimes doesn't line up with our internal witness of who we are. Paul's going to give these examples where claims don't align with this witness. He's going to punch out a few more here in verse 21. He says, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? Man, we have to be preaching the gospel to ourselves continually. Because we are so prone to wander if we're not preaching that gospel to ourselves all the time. While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you not commit adultery? Maybe with your mind, with your visual. You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, this is what cuts right to the heart. The name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Man, that is me. To practice what you preach, to put it into action. You see, the hypocrisy surrounding my weight and my desire to even lose weight has nothing to do with weight loss or body image. In fact, if, my, if there was another love language, it would be food. I love food. But my problem is the idol of comfort. I desire to find momentary comfort of greater value than resting in the person of Jesus Christ. I often joke and say, oh, I go to the light. It's just the refrigerator light. (laughs) It's an issue of codependency. I'm not sure what sin out there isn't codependency. We find different coping mechanisms with the difficulty of the world. But the call of the Christian is to rest in Christ. Come to me, all you who are weary, all you who are heavy laden, and I, Jesus Christ, will give you rest. Not that food. We have to examine our internals. Why do I do what I do? God said to Cain and Abel, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to yours, but you must master it. The call of our Christianity is to master that which has greater desire over ours. I want to follow Jesus. Paul's going to get there in Romans 7. I do do the thing that I don't want to do. The battle is real. But point two here is that the self-righteous life of hypocrisy is real. And I believe we all suffer from it. You see, the greatest threat to Christianity is the perception of the church. It's filled with a whole bunch of hypocrites. 
part A of this is what are our motivations? What is our desire? What's actually compelling me to go forward? Why do I do what I do? Because the real reality here is that if you have the light, you ought to shine the light. If God gave you the light of his law, then that purpose is so that you would shine that light. Not in condemnation, just as we looked at the tail end of Romans 1. We're not here to judge the sexually immoral. We're here to point them to Jesus Christ. The only hope that they could possibly have. And here again, we see Pharisees and self-righteous people who are also void of Christ. The law was this precious gift given from God to Israel. And if Israel was responsible, personally responsible for it, she should have shown it as a light amongst all the nations. But instead it kept it here. Only in its own self-performance. There's nothing sinful with our obedience to the law. So what's the problem? The problem is seen in 21a. You therefore who teach another, do you not teach yourself? Do you teach the gospel to yourself over and over and hold yourself accountable by the reality of what actually causes you to do what you do? His question anticipates a negative answer Right? And we know that from verses 23 and 24, right? But he says, you have all this revelation and all this light and all this knowledge and all this truth and still you don't get it. You teach a form of it to others, but you don't go to the heart or the root of it for yourself. Do what I say, not what I do. This is hypocrisy. I think that's what Paul means in 21a when he says, he says, you therefore who teach others, you just don't teach yourselves. You have the truth, and the truth is great. But unless it comes from within, it's meaningless. It's worthless. There is no sign, there is no seal of the covenantal promise of God in that we use outward obedience sometimes to boast in the law. Look at me. Selfies with the homeless. Selfies with whatever. The selfie culture is not driven from a love of God. You see, true love uses truth to bless others. But sin uses truth to exalt oneself. Both of these means use truth both can even quote and preach the Bible. But only one is really taught by the truth and taught specifically by the Bible. The three examples that Paul gives, you who preach that one shall not steal, do you steal? Yes, I do. You who say that one should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? Yes, I do. You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? Yes, I do. Remember the rich young ruler in Matthew 19? He came and he said, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? Jesus, of course, points him, keep the commandments. You realize that the, the entry level, the stake is the standard. It is a perfect fulfillment of the law. There is no one who will see the face of God that doesn't stand before him as holy and perfect. 
The question you should be asking yourself, are you going to try and do that by your own merits, or are you going to stand before him in trust and dependency upon the person of Jesus Christ? I hope you choose the latter. But he said, which ones? Right? And Jesus, of course, takes him, uh, oftentimes we call them the horizontal, these people-related ones. He says, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said, all of these I've kept. I've kept these from my youth. What do I still lack? Jesus said to him, if you would be perfect, if you've perfectly fulfilled all these, then take everything you have and give it to the poor and come follow me. Wow. I mean, talk about your mic-dropping moment. Boom. There you go. Show it. Prove it. The man walks away ashamed because he had a lot of possessions. You see, we can't violate commandments 2 through 10 without first violating commandment number 1. You shall have no other God but the one true God. Man, I do that every time I walk to that refrigerator. I am not seeking God. I am seeking a moment of comfort. And it's hypocrisy. But the law, part B here, is God's law reveals our position in life. It reveals it because the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness, all unrighteousness. This grace, this mercy of God to reveal that I am a sinner. I am a sinner saved by the unmerited grace of Jesus Christ. I am not going to stand before Jesus one day on my own merit. I will bow before a holy God who set his affection upon me and pulled me out of this miserable place. It teaches us that Israel, while having the form and the embodiment of the law, and while teaching others, didn't teach herself what the law really meant. They didn't get to the heart or the essence of the law. Because the essence of the law is it taught faith. Because the law becomes this this, this thing that none of us can accomplish. No one can accomplish this. And it leaves you with only one possible solution. Jesus Christ. And the requirement is faith. And God had no faith that you would put, pick up your own faith, so he gave it to you as a gift. This is incredible. You see, Israel did not teach themselves these things. They stayed at the level of external righteousness and didn't understand the commandments where the call is to live by faith in the all-supplying grace of God. So they robbed the temple of the one main thing that the law demanded, which was faith. The one thing that honors and glorifies God, they kept to themselves. Oh, how I do that all the time. By robbing the temple. You see, Romans 4 is going to tell us, no unbelief ever made him waver concerning the promise of God. But he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory where? To God. It's not about me. It's all about him. Don't rob God of this glory. 
Oh, that everyone, that everyone in this room would at the core of their being, even now by the Spirit of God, know the difference between establishing our own righteousness versus receiving the righteousness as a gift through faith in Christ. It's not what I bring to the table. It's he brought it all. It is finished. He accomplished it. Paul is going to use the illustration, the dramatization of circumcision to show an external sign and seal versus an internal circumcision as his illustration for them. Nothing they would have known better than this Abrahamic covenant where circumcision is the sign and seal of that covenant of God. In Genesis 15, where Abram at the time was in a covenant relationship with God and God wanted to reveal to him his plan. And in that plan, he made a promise. And in that time, how promises or contracts were made is that they would in fact cut animals in half. They would cut them in half and they'd lay each part on either side of a path. And there would be all these dead animals cut in half on the side of the path, and the two people that would enter into the covenant relationship would walk between the animals, blessings and curses, that I would be a blessing to this promise, for if I am cursed, may I end up like these animals. It's a very graphic design of the covenant that they would do. But in this particular case in Genesis 15, God walked on Abraham's part. He caused a fog to come over Abram so that he couldn't get up and walk between it. And God said, I'm walking on behalf of myself. If I don't keep these things, may I become cursed. And then he walked through it on behalf of Abram. And as he walked with him, he says, and if Abram doesn't do this, may I, God, become cursed. How could he lose? Cursed is the man who hangs on a tree. Jesus Christ bore our sins because of the Abrahamic covenant. Because we blew it and God fulfilled it. Paul is trying to drive this point that it's not your obedience that saves your soul. It is God who made the covenant. And the sign and seal of this was circumcision. So what does he do? Verse 25, for circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart. How? By the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but it is from God. Circumcision is the sign and seal of the covenant, but the sign and seal is not an external exercise, but is in fact an inward piercing of the heart. Point three is then how do we live out true faith? Verses 25 through 29 tells us how we're to live out true faith. Part A, 
inward transformation. Paul's purpose in this section is to underline the need of the Jewish people, along with the rest of the world, all of us high compliant rule followers, for the gift of righteousness, which God is one who freely gives to those who trust in Christ Jesus. Paul said in Romans 1, 16 and 17, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. To whom? To the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. You are not saved unless the Holy Spirit indwells you and has circumcised your heart and has given you the gift of faith. Look at Romans 3, 20, and verse, and verse 28. It says, for by works of the law, how many people? No human being will be justified. No human being will be saved in his sight. Since through the law comes knowledge of sin. The law of God points us to our sin and that we're lost so that Christ can reveal his salvation in saving our soul by giving us the gift of faith, right? Verse 28, for we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. This is beautiful. It's amazing. In verse 26, the uncircumcised man, the Gentile, will be regarded by God as a circumcised man, a true Jew. Paul will get to this. He's going to say not all of Israel is Israel. Paul is referring to his church, his bride, his chosen people. While many of the Jews were pointing to their ethnic Judaism, they were pointing that that's how I was born, therefore I'm one of God's chosen people. And God, through Paul, has just explained not all Israel will be Israel. And even Gentiles will be considered Jews to keep the requirements of the law. So if the uncircumcised man keeps the requirements of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? How do I keep the law? Something I have no ability to do. It's going to be by the Spirit. You see, 1 Corinthians seven nineteen says, for neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision be circumcised, don't be circumcised. It doesn't really count for anything. But how? Keeping the commandments of God. Hebrews tells us to pursue peace and holiness, perfection, without which no one will see the face of God. Our purpose in life is to keep the commandments by faith that were fulfilled by Christ and by Christ alone. Through thanksgiving, Verse 27, the Gentiles will be a living indictment of the disobedient Jews at the judgment day of the Gentiles because they, in fact, will be the ones who kept the law, those who believe. And he says, and he who is physically uncircumcised, a Gentile, if he keeps the law, he will not judge, he, uh, will he not judge you? He's really, really going to the jugular of this community. He's not only saying that you're not saved, but the Gentile who becomes saved will be the one who will judge you on judgment day. The very person who you claim to be filthy, the very person who you say is unrighteous, the very person who you say, 
It's like Thomas spoke about last week when he talked about, um, when he talked, when he talked, or a couple weeks ago, when he talked about the Pharisee going into the prayer. Lord, thank you for not making me like that tax collector. Do you not know that that tax collector will judge that Pharisee? As brothers and sisters, you will all join with God and Jesus in the great white throne judgment. If you're standing behind it, you're in a good place. If you're in front of it, run. But there's nowhere for you to go. The question that it leads us to is that this underlines the need of the Jew not to presume upon their privilege. They are sinners like all of us, liable to judgment like us. The question that we have to ask ourselves, part B here, is does the outward view match the inward you? Verse 28 and 29, for he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew, he is a chosen person who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that which is of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter, and his praise is not from men, but from God. This is amazing. He says, in essence, that the law-keeping or the law-fulfilling makes you a true Jew because it is not merely an external thing, but an internal thing. You see, he's not getting rid of the law. He's fulfilling it. That the fulfilling the law means experiencing a heart change. That the spirit has come into you and that that is living in sync with that inner change. So the point is that the person is a true Jew, is one of true saved people, a part of God's redeemed people. If he fulfills the law and left to my own fleshly desires, that's simply not possible. So this has to be attached to something else, to the spirit of God. Look at the original of this in Deuteronomy 30, verse six. It says, and the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. That's why Paul, and what Paul's talking about here. He's not talking about being a natural born Jew. He's talking about by the spirit. Jews at that time were not being moved by the spirit. They were being moved by the flesh. Right, when you look at Matthew 22, um, when we see in Matthew 20, but when the Pharisees heard that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered and one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question, testing him, teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. The second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Upon these two commandments hangs what? The whole law and the prophets. Everything's fulfilled. So what does Paul say? He says that they were transgressing the law by their circumcision, their outward sign and seal, was useless and it didn't help them at all. Why? Because they're missing the spirit. They're missing the spirit. 
You look in the Old Testament, you look in Jeremiah 31, it says, for this is the covenant, right, that I will make with the house of Israel after those days when Christ comes, declares the Lord, I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. That's God's chosen people, Israel. Ezekiel 11, and I will give them one heart and a new spirit I will put within them. I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh. Why? So that they may walk in my statutes and keep my rules and obey them. And they shall be my people and I will be their God. Or Ezekiel 36, 27, it says, and I will put my spirit within you And look at this word here, and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Brothers and sisters, God is the primary causality of our obedience. If your obedience is being driven from your fleshly desire to be seen as obedient by the world, then you are void of the spirit of God. I'm not talking about, I'm talking about a continual state. Not those one-offs. We'll find ourselves prone to wander all the time, will we not? But Paul calls the law here, minus the spirit, the letter. The letter of the law, not the spirit of it. You see, without the spirit, we either reject the law of God, or we manipulate it into something that we think we can manage. Like, I'll just go find some comfort from the refrigerator. Paul told us in 2 Corinthians 3, 6, he says, who has made us sufficient to be ministers, to be ambassadors of the new covenant? Not of the letter, but of the spirit. For the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. It is the spirit that separates us from righteous and unrighteous. Not our works, but his I'm going to call the worship team up and even have the prayer team on standby here, but what's the point of all this? It's an important point because our salvation hangs on this. That is the work of the Holy Spirit. Number one, circumcising our heart, why? To love the Lord. Deuteronomy 36, and the Lord God... Uh, will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring. Why? So that you will love the Lord. We can't love unless he first loves us. God is the primary causality. Point two, writing the law of God on our hearts. This leaves us without excuse, but look at it in Jeremiah 31. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law... God's the primary causality within them. And I, God, will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they will be my people chosen. Number three, freeing us from our need for the praise of man. Paul says in Romans 2.29, but a Jew is one inwardly and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter. It doesn't matter what you do on your outside. It matters whether the Spirit of God indwells you. You see, I'm not on a diet to change my exterior. I honestly could care less. I say that in all great faith that I was voted the worst dressed person in high school. 
Because even back then, I really don't care. Care what I look like, how I'm dressed. But what matters to me is that I'm on a journey, a journey of repentance. To master or discipline my idol of comfort in all forms of codependency. Because if I master this desire and I surrender to trusting Christ, that'll take care of the rest. Paul told us in 2 Corinthians 5.17, therefore if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, behold the new has come. Through submission to Christ, by trusting in Christ, I put to death, I mortify the sins that still grip me to this day. All of this is what Christ obtained for us when he shed his blood to seal the new covenant, the circumcision of the heart. We must repent not only of our unrighteousness, but also our self-righteousness. May the Spirit of God cause us to live in truth, to love God, to love people, to make disciples. And may this be driven from the inside out. Don't let the external pressures of life try to shape your heart into a diamond. Let God change that heart of stone to a heart of flesh that he can shape and mold through our surrender. And may our surrender be all to his glory. Amen. Brothers and sisters, we are prone to wander. Don't be discouraged. Cling to Christ. Cling to the gospel. Preach it to yourself daily. Overcome these things that grip you. Overcome these things that drive your desire away from Christ. Today we have the, the prayer team is going to be down here like there are most Sundays, but take advantage of that. Come and just pray and ask God to have his mercy, his kindness that ever pursues us. That we would stand firm in the truth and the promise of God that his spirit has entered into you. And the hope that we have is when we're compelled by God for God. Amen? I love you guys. We will see you next week.